Welcome to the Patient Partner Innovation Community Podcast, a podcast created to inform patients, families, and caregivers about important health transformation topics. Since the 2001 Crossing the Quality Chasm Report by the Institute of Medicine, our nation's healthcare system has recognized its need to improve quality of care by way of six important aims that make healthcare safe, efficient, effective, patient-centered, timely, and equitable. But we cannot hope to cross this chasm and achieve these aims until we make fundamental changes to the whole healthcare system. All levels of this work require dramatic improvements from the patient's experience. So this podcast is dedicated to you, the voices most underutilized resource in healthcare, our patients' voices. Welcome, and we hope you enjoy the Patient Partner Innovation Community Podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Natasha Washington, president and founder of ATW Health Solutions and sponsor for the Patient Partner Innovation Community. Follow the PPIC community online at atwhealth.com. Well, hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to this week's podcast episode of Patient Partner Innovation Community. I'm your host, Desiree Collins-Bradley, and I am super excited to dive into the conversation today with Ms. Karen Fernandez. But before we start, I always would like to highlight our sponsors for this episode. This episode is brought to you by ATW Health Solutions. ATW Health Solutions is a Chicago-based healthcare advisory and consulting firm that has gained national recognition for transforming healthcare delivery systems from ordinary to best in class. At ATW Health Solutions, we use a data-driven, evidence-based approach to make healthcare better by focusing on improving quality, safety, and health equity in organizations and government agencies. Simply put, We create and implement innovative solutions for the right problems and the right people. So thank you, Ms. Karen, for joining us today. I know you as we've got to know each other quite a bit uh, through the years, but please introduce yourself to our uh, listeners. All right. Thank you so much for inviting me to to share the uh, DES experience with you. And it's been a pleasure working with you and your colleagues over the past years. Uh, my name is Karen Fernandez, and I'm kind of twofold. I'm a patient and a patient advocate, um, and I'm also a nurse. I've been a nurse for over 50 years. That's a long time. Um, but uh, most important, what I wanted to talk with you today about is uh, DES exposure, the victims of DES. Uh, it is what I call a forgotten population. Um, I am a DES daughter. Um, and I was told back in the mid 70s of my exposure. DES is a synthetic estrogen that was discovered in 1938 by chemist Charles Dodds and started, and they thought it was a great discovery because it was uh, easy to produce. And, but in 1940, they really found it was carcinogenic because it was causing mammary tumors in male mice. But as the OB community got very excited about it, um, in 
Boston, George and Olive Smith, Drs. George and Olive Smith, developed the Smith and Smith regime, which became very widely uh, followed. My mother took the Smith and Smith regime. And DES, diethylstilbestrol, was given at in increasing doses just from the point of pregnancy through the entire pregnancy. So, um, and therefore my health has been affected. We knew back in 1952 with the Dykeman studies that actually DES was ineffective. It is a known carcinogen and a known carterogen. However, it was used in pregnant women in the United States. Well, I've talked to people to the mid 1970s. Wow, um, that's a long yeah. time. That, that's getting into you know, my generation and that I had never heard of this until we had that conversation about DES. So no, no. that is very recent. Although people are like, oh, 19, that, that is very, very recent. It's very recent. And I talk with the DES exposed, um, you know, feels like almost daily. Um, so I learned my exposure in 1974. I was after nursing school. I was young. I had my first ectopic pregnancy. That was the pregnancy in my and uh, had surgery, had the tube removed, and I was a 20-year-old, all right? Just like all 20, oh, I'll be fine, and, and you move on. Then I had trouble getting pregnant, had multiple surgeries. Fortunately, I have what I call my miracle son, and I had a normal pregnancy with him. But two years later, uh, and at that time, I knew I was a DES daughter, I felt I was pregnant. And we didn't have the test that we have today. And I said, oh, you have to wait. Well, I had pain and I was taken care of by the Leahy Clinic in Boston. So I went to the Northern Baptist Hospital, was in the hospital for a couple of weeks. They said, the baby's in your uterus, you're fine, go home. And so I did. And that night I was taken by ambulance with a very low blood pressure and hemorrhaging internally back to Boston for uh, another surgery. And they nearly lost me with that one. So at that point, uh, I lost my remaining ovary. Very, very, very traumatic. And I talk with so many DES exposed, whether the daughters or sons or granddaughters, and the pain and suffering we've had from our exposure is, is really, it's very deep and it's prolonged. Uh, mm -hmm. I continued on and had more issues. And then I connected the dots. All the various health issues I was having was related to DES. Mm. So I contacted a, a, a very wonderful woman in California, Pat Cody, and we talked about that and I began my advocacy upon my discussions with her. And being in healthcare, the way I was able to deal with this mm -hmm. was to read everything I could read. Mm. So I have a library of uh, literature that was written back in the 40s. Anything I could get my hands on in DES, I read. That was my way of dealing. Mm -hmm. But like I mentioned earlier, this is a forgotten population and Sometimes people will hear about it and they'll put something aside, which I did, and all of a sudden I needed to connect. So 11 years ago, we formed DES Info. These are a group of DES daughters and two of us are nurses. And this is something we provide for uh, education and support to the uh, victims of the DES exposure. Uh, we have Facebook pages. We post every day. We post uh, articles whether it be recent or past, because it's a, it's a journey. It's a learning experience for many people. The Sentinel event that occurred was in 1971, 
when in Boston, they found young women uh, in their teens developing clear cell vaginal adenocarcinoma. Mm-hmm. And when they connected those dots, uh, they knew we, we had something going on. At that point, the physicians were advised not to prescribe DES. However, prescribing still continued. Uh, some physicians prescribed it uh, to every pregnant patient. Some women thought they were only taking vitamins. It was given under 200 different brand names. So wow. there were so many different brand names, you know, <laughs> You would you wouldn't really know unless they said yes. My mother's was still Besterol, so that was that was clear, but the yeah. others were not. So uh, we were advised as DES daughters to have annual GYN exams. Okay. And then we thought, okay, when you reach your thirties and forties, you should be okay. Well, that's mm-hmm. not the case. We are at increased risk for reproductive cancers throughout our lives, so we do recommend annual GYN exams, which becomes a problem because. Some of the uh, literature that's out there and the guidelines for caring for older women say, oh, well, you don't have to get an annual mammogram. Mm-hmm. Maybe way down, they'll have an exclusion for the DES exposed. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, we must have those at annual julium. And, and they are specific. Also, they found um, because DES was a carcinogen and a tetragen, as I mentioned, the DES mothers were found to be at risk for breast cancer. Mm-hmm. We've lost many DES mothers through that. Wow. Also, the mothers experienced a lot of guilt. Here they took a medication prescribed by their doctor wanting yeah. to have a baby. It's kind of off-label drug use. Mm-hmm. It was given to diabetic women, women who had problem pregnancies. And in the 1950s, we didn't have the internet. They trusted what yeah. the doctors were telling. So there's a lot of guilt there. So we know the mothers are at risk for, risk for the breast cancer. We now know the daughters are at increased risk for breast cancer. So therefore, we must have annual mammograms. Um, that, I'm going to stop right there because, yes. you know, and, and I'm 44. Mm-hmm. And I know when in my younger years, um, I was never given an option to have a mammogram as it wasn't uh, my time. I would guess you say it wasn't right. the suggested time. And then also insurance companies will push back because of those recommendations and guidelines. However, and I'm just thinking out loud of my own family history, there's a significant high number of women in my family that have had breast cancer, mastectomies, um, ovarian cancer, cervical cancer, lots of, I would say, female cancers. And now that I'm thinking, I think I'm one of two uh, female uh, granddaughters that haven't suffered from some type of female cancer, what have you. So it makes me suspect that maybe members of my family was exposed to this. But so for, I would say the everyday female that has no idea or really have the resources to connect with their family history, because my mom unfortunately is now nonverbal and couldn't, can't Mm -hmm. tell me if she had taken these drugs, how, what recommendations do you have for us to be, I would say, proactive and not reactive? One of the things that I, I tell our followers is, you know, they say, well, I can't get any evidence I had DES because mm-hmm. we can't get the medical records. I mean, they're old. They, we have government regulations say how long they must keep records. They can't yeah. get them. Then we go on on symptoms. You know, what are you experiencing? What have they seen on, on, on prior GYN exams, et cetera? Because sometimes... 
is very glaring for the DES daughter and they have a Coscomb cervix, they have adeno, uh, adenosis. Um, one of the things that I advise uh, the DES exposed population to do is to write on any intake forms. You go into um, a, get a mammogram. Mm -hmm. You, they will probably talk about family history of breast cancer. Make mm -hmm. sure you have that totally filled out. That's very, very important. Okay. For the DES exposed, I have yet to see, and I'm a consultant and I survey with hospitals and cancer centers across the country. I've mm -hmm. yet to see one question on any intake form. Are you DES exposed or you do you have a family of history of DES mm. exposure? Because it's the first transplacental carcinogen we now has gone into the third generation. Wow. So whenever uh, I advise people, write it right there. I'm a DES daughter. I'm a DES granddaughter. And and I advise hospitals and uh, clinics. Mm -hmm. We've now gone into the world of electronic medical records, EMRs. Yes. It's very simple to add an extra question on those when you're <laughs> yeah. filling out those forms, isn't it? And that yeah. triggers something, someone to Absolutely. When I go for a mammogram, and fortunately, praise the Lord, I have not had any issues yet, yet. So I ask for a diagnostic mammogram. And the doctor has to write specifically for a diagnostic. Okay. And, and for a diagnostic, then that radiologist knows, oh, I might be looking for something additional. Of course, I've got my DES daughter all over there. Yeah. And they review my films while I am in the center. Whoa. And then the radiologist will come and visit with me to tell me what they found. Okay. And that's my time to really talk with them about their knowledge of DES. And unfortunately, the knowledge of DES from our medical health care providers is very, very limited. Mm -hmm. um, I went to see a pulmonologist and I said, just tell him I'm coming in with a test. I want to talk with him about DES. Mm -hmm. So he was ready for me. And I said, so what do you know about DES? And he says, there was one question on my boards many years ago. And that was, oh, title. wow. Yeah, yeah, that's it. To um, vaginal cancer. Well, we now know we've got cervical cancer, we've got breast cancer. And then some of the recent studies, um, let me pull this out. We, we mm -hmm. the DES timeline for our people. But okay. it's not just reproductive things we're looking at. We were bathed in a synthetic estrogen for our entire, you know, pregnancy, our mother's pregnancy. Now we're seeing an increased risk for diabetes, gallbladder disease, pancreatic disorders, and malignancy. Wow. We now know that DES did affect the genome and many different elements of the genome, and it's particularly the cardiac genome. So now we're seeing increased cardiac disease. And, um, and Women are not aware of this. Physicians are not aware of it. Yeah, no. So with DES Info, I talk about knowledge is power. Absolutely. Is power. So, you know, go in with your timeline. Go in with your question. And don't be afraid. And unfortunately, sometimes the physicians will get defensive. But mm -hmm. we have to be our own advocates. That's right. And uh, I've done some educational programs for residency programs, and mm -hmm. I wish we could get more of those in because the younger doctors need to be educated about this. Uh, the NCI and uh, 
NIH have a really good website and I will be giving you some links to that. And, and they have links on theirs as far as different research studies because um, it's affected a lot of our body systems. Um, it's affected our spine. It has affected, um, um, you know, the, our spine is decompressed. It's aging early. Yep. Uh, I've had people with kidney disease. You think about all of our organs that we're forming. Yeah. Um, one of the other interesting ones we found with the third generation, uh, we've had a few findings there. The DES grandsons were uh, born with hypospadias. And that means the tip of the urethra comes out in an atypical spot on the penis. Mm. Classic to do the DES. We've also seen some ovarian cancers in the DES granddaughters. Mm -hmm. I was just reading before we got on, we have seen um, reproductive problems in the DES granddaughters. Another recent finding was ADHD in the third generation. Mm. So yeah, it's an ongoing journey and our story is not over. Not at all. Well, you know, and I think about providers in particular, right? Like you said, knowledge is power. What advice would you give? Because our listeners are very diverse. We have patients, providers, healthcare leaders, everyone that's kind of connected to healthcare tunes into the podcast. So if you could give some words, I would say advice or wisdom to providers, because it sounds like there's a gap in knowledge on that side. What advice would you give them so that they could be, I would say, more collaborative and partner with their patients to kind of tackle this DES? To providers, I recommend they go to the uh, to the links from the NIH and the NCI. Um, there are wonderful resources. There's also some videos on there uh, that's very interesting to listen to. Uh, that, that's where they need to go. Um, they need to listen to their patients. If their patient is coming in and saying, I'm a DES daughter, and instead of saying, oh, that's not really a problem anymore, say to your patient, that's interesting. Can you tell me what you've experienced and what you know about your exposure? And what healthcare concerns have you had? So it can be an ongoing dialogue between the provider and the patient. Uh, patients are very tired of having to educate their healthcare providers. So there is resources out there. Um, if um, NACOG and uh, other associations could do some CMEs on this, that would be fabulous. Yeah. They need CMEs for their license, right? They do. That That is a wonderful idea. Yes. Wonderful. And yes. maybe something in, you know, I think about all in all your advocacy work could be something that you guys could do for the DES community. You know, I think that would, that's a brilliant idea. Yes. And we've got some good NIEHS and, NI, and NCI researchers that could help us. Let me throw a couple other caveats in here. Yeah. When we talk about DES given to the pregnant women to prevent uh, a miscarriage. Mm -hmm. Well, fortunately, we were all meant to be here. However, it was given in a couple other areas. Um, in Australia and New Zealand, they had the Tall Girl Project, which the physicians there felt, oh, if you're going to be tall, you're not going to be a really good dancer, attractive to men and so forth. So let us give you DES to try and stunt your growth. So those women are having problems. 
And, you know, I've been doing this advocacy work since the 1980s. Do you know within the past couple of years, I have heard from women who were given the drug as a tall girl um, prescription in the middle of America in Chicago. So it wasn't just in other countries. Wow. It was given here. And in the U.S. Been, in the U.S. And we have no idea how many were involved. So I would hmm. call them DES exposed women. So again, risk for breast cancer, reproductive cancers. It was also given right now um, in Scotland, there's a big uh, debate about mothers that were given their babies up for adoption and they hmm. were given DES to dry up their milk. So therefore they were exposed to DES and have the same risk as probably the tall girls. Yeah. It was also given as a morning after pill. It was given heavily in the military. And let me give you an example. It was very interesting, the stories I received. And I had a, a former veteran call me and wanted to talk about this. And she was raped on active duty in Germany. And her treatment was large, fairly large dosages of DES for a uh, number of days, I think at least five days. Oh, wow. She has now experienced uh, breast cancer and cervical cancer. So we need to reach out also to the VA because they're mm -hmm. caring for many DES exposed people, whether they're the, the older veterans mm -hmm. or perhaps veterans that are third generation. Yeah. We haven't really gotten any information yet on the fourth generation, but mm -hmm. certainly the third generation. Again, we need to ask the questions, get yeah. those intakes form updated, make this part of what they ask. We ask people, have you fallen recently? Do you feel safe at home? Yep. You can ask them about the history of DES. Absolutely. Well, you know, I truly believe that, you know, the more we discuss these topics, and I know some people, you know, some people don't like to push the envelope. That is not me. You know, there are all of these pockets of communities around the world that have either been exposed to adverse drugs, what have you. And the only way we're going to improve and move forward is if we talk about it. So I really appreciate your willingness to come on the podcast and really discuss this and educate our learners. And you said it best, knowledge is definitely power. So before we uh, kind of come to a close, is there anything else that you would like to share on the podcast around DES, your advocacy work? Also, I know that you do consulting. Please share with our listeners that part, because again, knowledge is power. Thank you. Um, I left the bedside a number of years ago, and all I did as a nurse and as a clinician helped me to be the um, person I am today. Um, in 2004, I established a consulting firm called AYR Consulting Group, and we work with hospitals across the country. And I was able to um, be part of committees in Washington, uh, the National Quality Forum, the Federation of American Hospitals, and former chair of their Quality Committee, and also committees with the Drug Commission. And they're an accrediting body. Um, for hospitals that participate uh, in the Medicare program. So I'm on committees with them as well. So I get to see a lot of things that are going on across the country. And I love to approach it as I'm an educator. And I know our nurses and doctors want to do the very best they can to care for their patients. 
and I may find some opportunities for improvement. Um, but it's it's all about the care they provide every day. So I provide education of why these are necessary, what standard comes from this, what Medicare regulation is, is tying to this, um, because that all ties to payment to the hospital. But again, more importantly, that nurse, that doctor on the front line just wants to do the best job they can. And I want to help them do that. Wow. Well, that is, uh, again, it's all about the spirit of collaboration and partnership. And you said something that really resonated with me. You know, our nurses, our doctors, especially in this COVID environment, are really, really been our frontline workers and really, you know, burned out and, and, and stressed. And so, you know, the fact that, yes, they come to work every day. And I also truly believe that, People don't get into healthcare um, on a whim. They get into healthcare because they really want to care and do what's best for their patients and people. So I appreciate you, you know, joining them in the in the good fight and ensuring that they have the supports and tools that they need to do the best job that they can yes. do. But you know, thank you so much, Miss Karen Fernandez, for joining our podcast today. We will definitely have all the links in the description. So if you guys are looking for the studies, you're looking for Miss Karen's information, all that's going to be in the description. So I urge you to go and read the description, read her bio, click the links, educate yourself and really share the information because like she said it, knowledge is power. So thank you again, Miss Karen, for joining us. And as always, guys, be engaged. Follow the PP community online at atwhealth.com.